I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll mark the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the historic level of sanctions and export controls that have been implemented against Russia, all on this episode of The Trade Guys. Welcome back to The Trade Guys, where this week marks the somber one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Guys, we saw the last year historic levels of sanctions and export controls implemented against Russia. Let's talk, Scott, what effect have these sanctions and export controls had in the big picture on Russia's war machine? This is a principal tactic of NATO. And so it's very important to kind of look at it as far back as you, as you can. What I did was took a look at IMF does a good job of collecting data on real GDP growth, almost any way you want to slice the world. So I, I looked up the, this century, there were three times that Russia had negative growth, so that it actually the economy in Russia shrank. The three times were first 2014-15, which was the Crimea sanctions. Second was 2020 and 2021, that, that one-year period from COVID. And third, 2022 to 23, so the most recent Ukraine. So there is a response from sanctions. What I found intriguing is in 2014-15, when the financial sanctions first hit or were first utilized with the, with the annexation of Crimea, the Russian economy declined double digits, about 20%, roughly speaking. Same thing happened in COVID, a double-digit decline in real GDP for the Russian Federation. In the most recent year after the Ukraine invasion, the decline is 2.3%. And so now it's a decline, so there was some effect. But what I conclude from that is the countermeasures to financial sanctions, which Russia implemented since the 2014-15 time period, seemed to work. They were able to find an alternative to SWIFT. Their electronic banking system is different, but not disabled completely. They built up gold reserves, and so they were less exposed. Now, the ruble is not really a globally traded currency, but they, they were able to harden the currency with a buildup in gold reserves. And they're, frankly, they're, their exports of oil continue. They're still exporting about a billion dollars a day at somewhat lower prices. But if you think of oil trade as a cash flow item for the Russian Federation, it's not as bad as many were forecasting. Now, there have been some harm to NATO. This had a cost to the imposing parties. You know, the U.S. is slow growing. We had about 1% growth in the last year. And I'm old enough to call it 70s-style stagflation, or it kind of looks like that with high inflation and slow growth. Europe uh, was mostly an outright recession during the period. Germany contracted by three-tenths of a percent. Europe as a whole was basically flat. But And while Europe and the UK avoided an energy crisis due to a mild winter, they haven't really figured out how to make up for the industrial competitiveness loss from the loss of inexpensive Russian gas that powered particularly German industry. So let me stop there because there's there's more to talk about about NATO and the need to rearm and those kinds of things. But that's the big picture. So uh, Russia was down, but not by nearly as much as the first time financial sanctions hit. 
and wasn't that great in the NATO region either. Bill, you want to jump in? Yeah, I think I think what's happened is pretty much what sanctions experts thought was going to happen all along, which is that this is a case of sand leaking out of the bag rather than dramatic events. Uh, I think the Russians clearly have learned from prior experiences that Scott cited how to deal with these problems. They acted very quickly right after the invasion to try to, to recoup from a sharp decline in the ruble's value. They did it largely by making it much more difficult to get currency in and out of the country, which is kind of art. It, basically, they're keeping the ruble uh, stable artificially, not by virtue of the market, but it done the job. And when we're talking about percentage declines, there are already significant declines in the past two incidences, as Scott suggested. So it's no particular surprise that the decline last year was less than those, although I think it was less than a lot of people expected. It's not entirely clear where all that is going to go. On, on the one hand, one projection is that thanks, I think, in part to the price cap on oil or fossil fuel price caps that are coming into play. Projections now are that Russian fossil fuel income on a monthly basis starting now will be maybe only half of the billion a day that it was last year. So that will have a bigger impact over time if it stays that way. On the export control front, it was always a question of how soon they'd run out of stuff because what export controls do is they don't take away what's already there. They simply stop more stuff from going in. And they've done that. I think the U.S. government's estimate of the extent to which they've done that has declined a little bit. And, you know, last summer they were saying 90 percent effective. And I think now they're saying 70 to 80 percent effective. That's not a surprise. I mean, what happens in these situations is people find ways around. You know, they find workarounds. They find ways to do it. One of the interesting little factoids is that while trade with Russia for most countries in the West has declined, there's a select group of countries where it's gone up, in some cases dramatically. A lot of them are on the border or near the border or former Soviet states, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Armenia. The one interesting one is Turkey, which is not on the board border and is, which is not a former Soviet satellite. But there's a widespread suspicion, which I agree with, that what we're seeing here is some rechanneling of trade and stuff that used to go to Russia directly is now going to Turkey or to Kazakhstan and then going into Russia through a more circuitous path. I think what you will see, and there's already been talk about that just this past week in the United States and also in Europe, of what steps can we take to make sure that third countries comply with the sanctions, which really means how can we go after entities in those countries, Turkey or Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan, that are taking Western goods and then reshipping them to Russia. But it's always sort of cat and mouse and catch up. You block a path and the criminals, and they are criminals, often will find another path. And so your, your sanctions are never, never 100% effective. And that helps keep them in business. But the real issue economically has been the, their oil and gas revenue. And if we, have, if we really are able to have that in 2023 and, and keep it at that level or below, I think that will cut into their ability to earn more foreign exchange or more money significantly, which in turn will make it harder for them to acquire the stuff they need to keep their, their war machine going. And related to that, we kind of joked, I think, last July or August that this war was going to be settled by whoever runs out of ammunition first. And at the time, I thought that was kind of funny. But it turns out that's really true. And both sides appear to be running out of ammunition right now. And one of the uh, odd things that we thought about last summer and is now turning out to be real is Western weapons manufacturing companies can't keep up. The Ukrainians are using more bullets than we can make. And I mean, and we just did a big report about that 
at CSIS. It's on our website right now. It's called Empty Bins. Well, yeah, exactly. And in a way, good on the Ukrainians for exploiting all the opportunities they have. But if they run out, you know, they're going to have a big problem. It appears that Russia has the same problem. So I won't say the war is going to grind to a halt, but it may end up slowing down a little bit just because the material that you need to sustain it is not is not going to be available. Well, and now, as Secretary Blinken pointed out this week after his meeting with the Chinese foreign minister, we really believe it's a red line. The administration believes it's a red line for China to be shipping weapons to Russia because that's one of the places they're going to look to rearm. Well, exactly. I think that's a preemptive strike on our part. I don't think they're doing that. The Chinese are doing that. We may have some intelligence that they're thinking about doing it. And with Xi Jinping apparently planning to go to Russia sometime in the near future, that would put the issue on the table. We speculated uh, last summer as to whether or not that would happen. And at the time, I was thinking more of a sort of a sanctions busting kind of thing, not an overt shipment of armaments, but chip companies, for example, supplying them with semiconductors that the West had cut off. And my assumption at the time was if that happened, we would find out about it. But I thought that the U.S. response at that level would be measured and focused on the individual companies that were doing that, you know, unless, of course, the Chinese government announces, you know, some giant military aid package that would put us in a different difficult position. It sounds like now that we're worried that that may be what they're going to do and that we're trying to head that off with a preemptive action, which may very well work. I mean, when you tell the Chinese it's a red line, I think that registers. They have lots of red lines and they're not shy about telling us what their red lines are. The main one being Taiwan. So when we say we have a red line, I think they know what that means. Their response may well be, well, we have some too. Maybe we should discuss both of them at the same time. I noticed that shortly after uh, the meeting with Secretary Blinken, that Wang Yi boarded a plane to Moscow for his meeting with his new friend, Sergei Lavrov. For me, there are two things to watch here that have surprised me. First is, it appears there's a closer relationship between Russia and China, right? And it's certainly China is benefiting from the availability of Russian oil at relatively modest prices, and they're buying it, as are India and other markets. And so it's, uh, as a whole, is unsurprising, but the close relationship getting closer is, I think, something to pay attention to. The other thing is that I noticed that petrodollar, which has existed for almost 50 years, has existed because oil is the largest traded commodity and the largest exporter of oil is Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia, since 1973, has only accepted trades that settle in US dollars. That made the petrodollar what it was as a global currency. About a month ago, the finance minister of Saudi Arabia announced that Saudi Arabia will be open to settlements in other currencies. It surprised me, but it is sort of the first step in de-dollarization. Right? And so these are things to watch because the further we go with sanctions, the further we constrain trade of others, the more these countermeasures start to surface. And then we got to deal with the countermeasures. That's interesting, Scott, because my next question really is, should we expect additional sanctions or have we reached peak sanctions? You never reach peak sanctions. There's always more things that you can do. And I'm pretty confident that those are being looked at right now. I think the, the main issue will be individual sanctions, putting more companies on the entities list in the case of commerce and going after individual Russians or individual Russian entities like banks, 
plus also looking at the sanctions in the services area. Yeah, especially designated individuals can can always be sanctioned. But I think we're to the point where incremental sanctions that will actually have an effect on Russia may also have an effect on NATO on a secondary basis or maybe directly. And so it's cost-benefit becomes a real thing. I think Bill's right that you can always go further, but sometimes the further you go, you, you wind up harming yourself. My favorite being the Cuban embargo. So let me, can I go back to the, the dollar for a minute? Because our, our friend Ed Gresser did his weekly factoid yesterday, and he chose to do it on currency trading and foreign currency transactions, which last year reached $2.7 quadrillion for the year, which is about $6 trillion a day, dwarfing trade balances. But the interesting thing in light of what Scott was saying is that of the total world currency exchanges last year, U.S. dollars figured in 88.6% of them. Now, that's a slight decline over 20 years, but it's kind of gone up and down, but it's been in the high 80s for a long time. Compared to that, the euro is involved in 32% in, uh, well, actually 30% last year, the yen uh, 17%, the RMB is involved in 1.6% of transactions last year, which makes them about on par with the Mexican peso and below the Australian dollar. So there may be some erosion here of the dollar, but there's a long way to go before you see particularly the, the, the RMB stepping in to become a global currency. Yes, de-dollarization is a long, a long ride, but in 1913, all trades were settled in British pounds. So, <laughs> well... In 2023, most of them are settled in the U.S. dollars, which is good for us. What about export controls? Have we seen peak export controls, or is there more that we and our allies can do? Well, as long as we're short of a total embargo, and we are, then yes, there is more we can do. If you focus just at sort of at the high end and on national security, we've probably done pretty much everything that needs to be done. As you move on, you get more into what are, would be simply sanctions, you know, denying them stuff that they need, denying them stuff that they, that they want, commercial items, consumer items, and things like that, which will raise the, you know, the irritation factor and deprive their economy of things. Although, you know, U.S. trade with Russia has gone down dramatically over the last year or so. U.S.-based export controls are not going to make a huge further difference to their economy. And I, you know, now that I think about it, our controls are extraterritorial. We do attempt to force third countries not to export stuff, but we've only done it in cases, semiconductors being the best example, where there's a very clear national security link and, and military link. I think there's probably going to be, would be reluctance on the part of the U.S. government to get beyond the sort of fairly narrow security framework in imposing more export controls. I think it's important to also remember that it appears, at least to me as a novice or just a citizen observer, that Russia's not fighting a 21st century war. They're fighting in many ways a 19th century war. It's ground troops. There's no air power, really, basically, that is part of the of the Russian uh, offensive. Except for now. the drones. Well, drones, yeah. But a lot of the high-tech materials that would be subject to export controls are not that important to Russia, given the way they are proceeding in this particular conflict. So, Well, to the extent that we can cripple their air force, I think that may impact the, the war over the long term. They have not attained air superiority over Ukraine, but uh, they still have capabilities there. And that's an area with 
jet fighters in particular, where some of the high-tech stuff we've been able to deny them, I think will have a significant impact. But again, over time, you know, what you do is if something breaks, you cannibalize another plane and put a good part in to replace the bad part. So you keep flying, but over time, your fleet shrinks. Yeah, the same thing The same thing's going to happen on the civilian side in energy production. Yes. Is that unless you invest in energy production, it declines over time. And investment requires technology. So to the extent we're restricting dual-use products in the hydrocarbon production chain, then that, that's going to have an effect, but only over the longer term. Yeah, but the thing to remember about that is it, it's a slow-moving train ride. You know, it's not yes, that's it's right. not speeding down the tracks at 120 kilometers an hour. It's slow, and what we're talking about is continuing to slow it down. Eventually, it grinds to a halt, but eventually it can be some, some time from now. Well, guys, would you say that the export controls have been more successful than the sanctions over the past year? I think it's been about the same. I mean, the the goals are, I mean, I kind of tend to look at them all as one thing, not as separate things, but the export control goals have been security oriented. They've been designed simply to deny Russia the items it needs to maintain a 21st century war machine, which as Scott pointed out, may not be the most important thing. The sanctions, in contrast, are simply designed to isolate Russia and to debilitate their economy to the extent possible. I think they've both been reasonably effective. We discussed in the beginning of this the smaller than expected decline in in Russian GDP over the previous year, but it's still a decline. It's still significant. I think some analysts would say that the real decline is probably greater than the macro data would suggest, that unemployment is greater than the macro data would suggest, and that inflation may be greater than is suggested. So things could very well be worse than we think. So I think they've both been reasonably effective, but not perfect. And not strong enough to deter Russia's actions. So look, the, so the, the war grinds on and it's it's not without cost on either side of obviously the human toll. There is is something that continues to be uh, a pain for, for both sides. And that's, that's a really important point because these are actions that are almost always long-term actions. And in this particular case, we have a a Russian government that appears to believe that it can wait them out and that over time, the allied powers will simply get tired and they'll get tired of the cost to them. They'll get tired of the lost income that fissures will develop amongst the various countries and that the the system will collapse and Russia can, you know, sort of of get back to normal without, without giving anything up, without giving up any ground. I mean, this is why I think you found both... President Biden being so vocal in saying that's not going to happen. And the Europeans, I think, being so consistent, we've talked about this before, too, and continually to come out with new packages of sanctions. I think now they're talking about the 11th or 12th package. And one of the reasons they're doing that is to keep the public focused and to keep the public's mind on the fact the war is still going on, it still matters, and there's still more to be done. So I think there's, you know, there's both sides are resolute here, which doesn't, which you know, which suggests no early outcome and probably a sustained stalemate, which is very depressing. But it looks like that's the way we're going. Yeah, frozen conflict. Continued cauldron for Russian teenagers and Ukrainian teenagers who were on the front lines. Guys, finally, I want to ask you: What lessons can we really draw from the current application of sanctions and export controls? 
as we consider growing frictions with China? Well, for me, it's not a unipolar world anymore. It's really a different time and era than it was in 1995. And this is a multipolar world. There are other options and there's not a superpower. There are multiple centers of power and they have different views on things. Uh, statements from uh, countries like Brazil and Mexico are factoring in there and they're contrary to NATO. So this is a, this is a, a tougher, more complicated situation that would have been two decades ago. I think the, I wouldn't say a lesson, I, I think that something that historians will debate in the future on Ukraine in specific is not just sanctions related, but sort of aid related. It was, would it have been better to do everything at once rather than parcel it out and incrementally over the space of a year? Should we have sent, should we have sent fighter planes? Should we have sent HIMARS? Should we have sent all this advanced weaponry the first two months and present the Russians, have presented the Russians with an overwhelming show of, of resistance? And might that have produced a different outcome than as we sort of needed it out in, in increments? And you can make the same argument about sanctions. Should we have done the whole thing all at once, embargoes, you know, total isolation? Would that have produced a different result? I don't know the answer to that. And I mean, one answer is probably it's an irrelevant question because the political will to do that wasn't there. And we did what we could uh, with what other countries were willing to do at the time. But I think historians will, will look from the standpoint of how the war turns out. Historians will look at that and, and will say, could the West have taken a different approach and would it have made any difference? On the China angle, I think what we wrestle with and what the Biden administration has to wrestle with is, is the allied success that we achieved with respect to Russia transferable to China should the need arise? And that's an unanswered question. I think there's a lot of countries in Europe who are hoping that the need doesn't arise and that they never have to answer the question. We just today at CSIS, in fact, downstairs from where I happen to be sitting right now, is there's a, a conference going on on sort of economic security, and they just did a panel on economic coercion. And one of the panelists from actually representing the State Department made the point that in the face of, of Chinese economic coercion, particularly on, on Lithuania, where they tend to sort of beat up on small countries, she thought that more and more countries were watching that and realizing that could be them. And that uh, if that's the way the Chinese are going to play the game, it suggests that more countries need to take prophylactic measures, do things to put themselves in a less vulnerable position. I mean, it didn't work with the Lithuanians and it didn't work with the Australians, but it caused a lot of annoyance and a lot of pain to both cases. And I think small countries in particular, which are the ones more likely to be bullied, by the Chinese, I have to be thinking, you know, maybe we should take some uh, precautionary steps beforehand, and maybe we should pay more attention to what the United States is doing and thinking about whether we want to be more aligned with them on this stuff. So we'll see how that evolves. Hopefully the Chinese don't give us a need to answer those questions. But the person from the State Department thought that, you know, there was some small tectonic shifting going on in the way other countries view China, and that would work to our advantage. Well, the bills are coming due uh, in the Belt and Road Initiative, and these magnanimous loans are now have some payments <laughs> that are expected, and that may change. This weekend is apparently a test of that because yes. the countries are getting together to talk about debt relief and the Western countries have talked about debt relief, but the biggest creditor is China and they haven't talked about debt relief yet. So it'll be interesting to see what how much they're willing to give to all the developing countries they lent money to and can't pay it back. Well, guys, you are interesting as always. Thank you so much for these insights. And we'll be back next week. All right. Thank you. Thank you.
To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.